0: What I'm going to talk about uh, this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, Colossians 3, and if you can turn there uh, as we look to God's word in Colossians chapter 3. And what I want us to do is to consider God's word, and I'm going to read the passage that we're going to consider. Then I'm going to pray, and we'll... We'll dive right in uh, because I'll need every moment um, of the time, you know, afforded me to get through this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is in all and is all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Father, we come before you now as we would look to your word and pray that it will encourage us that we can be edified by it, that we would be rebuked by it if necessary. Ultimately, that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ. And I also pray, Lord, if there is someone here uh, this morning and they don't know Christ, these things, although they may know the language of it or be familiar with it, it really isn't in their heart that you would open their eyes this morning and they would see Christ and be saved. So give me grace, give me clarity um, as I communicate these truths in Christ's name, amen. Okay, great, Colossians chapter 3, the title is Pre-Life Counseling. You may be wondering why this title, what does that mean, Pre-Life Counseling? And let me tell you the direction of it and how we're going to approach this passage. And it is a large passage in one sense. I've gone through it in parts, and it took me quite a while to do it in parts, and now here it is, in one message, all 17 verses, and that may seem unusual, particularly for someone that has had his training, you know, at the master Seminary, we tend to um, go sort of um, not just line by line, but just letter by letter at times, you know? You know, Paul, let's just stop with P and talk about P, right? Not even Paul did something. P, what does P mean? P, let's, let's evaluate that thoroughly, right? 16-part message on the letter P in Paul. But here I am, 17 verses. What am I doing, right? Pre-life counseling. Because what we're going to determine from this passage is Paul, in these first 17 verses, is saying, I am preparing you for life. We've heard of premarital, some of you. Married here, you went through premarital counseling, you discovered things there that you didn't know about yourself and certain things you did know about yourself and about your spouse and about marriage and and what marriage entailed. And and that helped you before you went into marriage. There is even pre-employment counseling. Um, You're going to take on this job, so now this is what this job entails. Let's prepare you for it. And I believe what Paul is doing here, here is life, let me prepare you for it. And in particular, chapters 3, 18 to 4, 1, here is life in reference to family. Here is life in reference to work. And also, as well, you see later on in chapter 4, here is life. You're supposed to be in the world witnessing to the world the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you need preparation for it. You need counseling to ready yourself for it. And when we think about life and counseling and the family, we would all agree that the family is under attack. In society, it's being redefined, and it's being redefined in social settings, in the classroom, and in the classroom everywhere from grade school all the way to graduate school. What is a family? And we would also say in our country, sadly, that even at times by the government is redefining what it means to be a family. Issues of sexual orientation, redefined. How one identifies themselves and their gender, redefined. And this obviously presents a challenge for everyone to either understand life and to live accordingly if we don't have a proper definition of it. And let's say, for instance, even if it were not redefined, there is still the challenge to live in harmonious relationships at home and in work. Even if we could dial back the clock and and family and life and responsibilities and role models and roles within a family were defined as they were 100 years ago, it would still be a challenge to live in harmony in marriage and in the family and at work and and to be a witness there in the world. And the reasons that that it is a challenge or the reason that it is a challenge should be obvious to us all, it's the issue of sin. You know, for the unbeliever, they are bound in their sin and, and they have no resources apart from their own effort and simply moral training. Now, it is my position that an unbeliever can live in a harmonious relationship, um, but they can't do it to the glory of God, and obviously they can't do it being empowered by God. It's a greater struggle for them because they don't have any internal energy. They don't have the life of God in them to live out these relationships, but nonetheless they can do it. I was just visiting... uh, uh, last month, one of our Grace Advanced churches, one of our newer ones, we installed a pastor there in British Columbia, in Chilliwack, British Columbia, about 40, well, about an hour and some change east of Vancouver. And I met a gentleman, dear gentleman, um, that was at the church there, and I got to talk to him and realize that he really doesn't know the Lord. But he's there, and his wife is there, and she knows the Lord, and they've been married 50 years, 50 years. So how did he do that? He's not a believer. Some people would say, well, believers can't even have good marriages. They they can't have good families. That simply isn't true. They can because they are created in the image of God. And unbelievers don't suppress the truth absolutely. Unbelievers can have a sense of moral training, and they can live by that moral training as people who are endowed just with God's grace in a general way. Fifty years. I hope to be married 50 years. Some of you are here today, and you're just starting off on your marriage, and, and I'm sure that you hope to be married for 50 years. So it can happen for the unbeliever, but they're not empowered by God to do it. We who know Christ are. One of our professors actually at the seminary, Keith Essex, and he's retiring this year after 25 years of teaching at the seminary, and he was sharing a story. He is in, uh, his roots are in England and how his father told him that he should, go to, he should go to Sunday school until he was 13. And the reason behind that, his father doesn't know the Lord or didn't know the Lord. And he said, you should go to Sunday school because there you receive your moral training. And it was so interesting that Keith said that after he was 13, he said um, he still wanted to go to church because eventually he was saved. And his, his dad said to him, why do you want to go back now? You've received your moral training. That's what Sunday school is there for. So, even in his mindset as an unbeliever, he said, Well, there are wonderful things that you can learn in the church, but it's not through a relationship, it's just moral sort of um, teachings and principles. So, we say to ourselves, There's some challenges in front of us for our families, there's some challenges in front of us to live in the marketplace of life, and how can we do it? I mean, how could you do it consistently? And it's obvious that there is only one solution, and that solution is to to submit to the Word of God and follow the example of Jesus Christ. And we should follow the example of others who have followed Christ in the same way that Paul said, follow me as I'm a follower of Christ. So questions come up about, what about when marriage gets difficult? What about when my children aren't obeying? What about when I'm working in an environment where a a number of unbelievers are around me and I feel the temptations? What about when there's injustice even in my work environment? How should I respond? What about when I go out into the marketplace and I want to witness the gospel but people don't want to hear the gospel? How do I respond to these challenges? And I know that everyone here today, you want the answers to that and I think that it's clear from this passage that can help us. So what's my approach in this this morning? What's my approach this morning? I'm going to take us through chapter 3, 1 to 17, and essentially say that unless we understand this passage, we can't live out the rest of what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians. It can't be done. See, chapter 3, 1 to 17, is the, the theological and practical preparation for living out these truths in chapter 318 and following. Well, let's look at chapter 318. What does it say there? It's straightforward. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and don't be embittered. Children, be obedient. Fathers, don't exasperate. Slaves, obey. And then masters, make sure you treat them with a sense of dignity as well because you too have a Lord. And then he goes on to tell them in verses 5 and 6, you're to conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be with grace as that which is seasoned with salt. We're called to live this out. And the only way we can live this out is to have this counseling, if you will, from verses 1 to 17 of chapter 3. So what I'm going to do is show you in three parts. Three parts how verses 1 to 17 help prepare us for living out our Christian faith. And then what I'm going to do is consider some questions for us all that we may have in reference to what you'll see later in the chapter and then conclude with an exhortation to you. Number one is this. A proper vision of Christ and Christian priorities is needed for a victorious walk of faith. That's verses 1 to 4. So first, we have to have a proper vision of Christ. If we don't have a proper vision of Christ, then we won't be properly motivated to live out this faith. And let's look at this in three parts even here. Verses 1 to 4 of Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. So first, if we're going to have a proper vision of Christ and that vision motivates us to live out life, you have to have a lofty view of his person, a lofty view of his person. That is, you look to God and you look to his person and that person should motivate you properly to set examples in life. And it's obvious, why do we look to his person? Because he is the perfect example of what? Moral purity and obedience. Life is calling us to disobey. Uh, There are things in life that are contradiction to, to what we're called to be and what we're called to do and what we're called to think. The world system wants us to disobey the commands that are clearly in front of us. But Christ is that example. And so we look to him and his person and we ask questions about him as an individual and we dive as deeply as we can into understanding the person of Christ and saying, that's what I want in life. I want to emulate him. If you might extract even just one thought from the life of Christ, then it would be this, from the Gospel of John. And Christ himself saying this statement that he wanted to always please the Father, always please the Father. So we ask ourselves a question, how can I live that way? I mean, all of us, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could say, I always please the Father? I mean, if you could, every time you put your head to, um, to rest at night, say, this day I did everything to please the Father. If you could gather here every Sunday and when you shake the hands of someone and they ask you, how did your week go? You could say, my week was I did everything to please the Father. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? But guess what? (laughs) There's a problem, isn't there? And we are that problem. And sometimes we put our head to rest at night and say, what did I do to please the Father? And we come and gather here and say, boy, I had a bad week. There are times that I felt like I was falling back to my former way of life in certain areas. And it's not that way. But we look to Christ and we say, he is that example. Then let him motivate me for the direction of my life. It's also this as well. We must have a lofty view of his authority, a lofty view of his authority. So he says we are to... Look to where Christ is, and where is Christ? Seated at the right hand of God. See, this is a picture of his authority. And it's obvious from the text itself, this is a declaration of Christ's absolute authority over the universe. And why does he have this absolute authority over the universe? Because of what? His acceptable sacrifice for mankind. And what did he do? Having offered that acceptable sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of majesty. And the implication for for this is obvious, and it's clear, that if Christ is the absolute authority over all the universe itself, then surely he is the authority over our lives and our decisions and our relationships and our family and our work and our priorities and our decisions and our resources. How can he be the absolute authority over the universe, but yet he has no authority over your life? But he does. So I say to myself, since he has that absolute authority, I'm constantly asking myself, what must I surrender to Christ? Those are personal questions. I mean, in this room today, there are a thousand questions that if we were to compile them together, that each of us might ask ourselves and say, what should I surrender more to Christ? And I'd ask you to even now as you sit, God, what should I surrender to you? What area am I holding back? If you're the absolute authority of the universe, surely you're the authority of my life. Let me give more to you. Third is this. You must have a lofty view of your future. Notice what he says as well. Of course, set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. So prioritize properly. And then in verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What's going to happen in verse 4? When Christ, who is our life, he is the substance of our life, the purpose of our life, the the ultimate motivator for our life is revealed, you will be revealed with him in heaven. So we look to our future. Why is it important to look to our future? Uh, Because I would say that the Christian life is a grace-empowered effort. A grace-empowered effort to do what? We are striving to make our lives presently what they will be in eternity. And that perspective should help us in this life. I am living for eternity. And if I think about that properly, then that means that I need to reprioritize decisions and choices, resources, efforts, because I'm looking to the future. And if I think about eternity and all that that entails, then I will not be so transfixed on things that are temporary. But instead, what I will do, I will take all of my life choices through the grid of eternity. What do I mean? What do I mean by take them through the grid of eternity? If we think about here is the future. This is what I'm called for ultimately. Here is the purpose of my life. That I'm supposed to live and do all to the glory of God. This is what awaits me in life. Then I take that through that grid, and my decisions on the other end have to come out differently than they are right now. There are people right, right now that it's obvious. Because they think about the here and now, so they make decisions in the here and now. Um, Joan and I were just having, it's maybe the third discussion we've had about um, the recently um, impeached president of South Korea. And we were just discussing it. She had just talked with her parents about it. And, and they're just, it's hard for them to accept that sort of reality that it happened. And I've been reading a story about her corruption and, and everything that was involved in it. And we just got into this conversation even this morning. Why do people do things like that? Why? You say you're the president of a country. So what more do you want? What more power do you want? What more resources do you want? And it comes down to not thinking, obviously, about eternity. It's the here and now. I want more now. I want more resources. It's curious to me sometimes when you follow a storyline Of someone that already has resources beyond a lifetime and they're still caught in corruption. You say, why? This person is a multimillionaire. They could never spend that money in a lifetime, but yet they are corrupt for what reason? They want more. It's called greed, isn't it? And greed, it says more because they're transfixed on the here and now. They're not looking above, obviously, they're not thinking about eternity. And we as Christians have to live in absolute or be a total polar opposite of that. We think about eternity and things that are eternal and matters that are eternal. We think about people's souls. We think about an impact here that will affect lives through eternity. You witness to someone the gospel an eternal impact. You use our resources for Christian ministry an eternal impact that you have. You nurture your family for the good of God and eternal impact that you have. And sometimes people are so transfixed here that they can't see beyond that. And that can be true for believers as well. Here's a second major consideration. A passionate approach to killing sin is needed for a victorious walk of faith. We see that in verses 5 to 11. What you'll notice here in verses 5 to 11 is every vice that's mentioned in this passage is only going to lead to what? It's only going to lead to harming these relationships, if not altogether destroying the relationships, and ultimately even destroying your testimony in the workplace. If you notice, verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Actually, the language is much stronger than that, The, the NASB, which I've I study from and preach from is saying, consider them as dead. However, it is much stronger than that. The language is put to death. This is what you'll see if if you're reading from an ESV. Put these things to death. It's active. It means that you have to have a passionate approach about it. One cannot be passive whatsoever. And of course, if you're passive, what's going to happen? Sin is not passive. I think everyone here would note that, that it's aggressive, isn't it? It doesn't give up. There's no sense of surrender when it comes to sin. Sin is forever looking for some avenue to find its way into our thinking, into our lives, into our decisions. And now we have to have a passionate approach in putting it to death. And this includes the attitudes that we may have and the passions that really undermine any attempt for you to fix your thoughts above. Sin and these vices are forever trying to pull us down. If we're thinking about things above and we're looking to Christ above, what is sin attempting to do is to weigh us down and to pull us down. Just even notice some here, the ones that are mentioned in verse 5, immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed, all of these things. And notice what he says at the end of verse 5 which amounts to idolatry. Why did he say it amounts to idolatry? Because when one has their hopes and their passions fixed on sexual deviation or passions or any expression of evil desire, it ultimately is idolatry. And when we think about idolatry, just the basic sense of it is what? You are substituting your affections and your attentions for God. So sexual expression becomes your God. The passions that are degrading becomes your God. Your evil desires become your God. And just like even uh, to a certain measure, I don't know all the details. Uh, I most definitely don't know what was in her heart, the former president of Korea. But absolutely, there was greed. And that story can be told a hundred times, a thousand times through history. See, all these vices, and what are they going to do? They're going to undermine the fidelity of any family relationship. And the integrity is necessary for you to have a real example or testimony in the workplace of life. So people can look to you and say, that is Christianity. And what are they going to do? These sinful choices that sometimes we may fall prey to. What are they going to do? They're going to destroy trust. They're going to lead to compromise. It's an expression of selfishness. And ultimately, it may lead to things like there's going to be adultery. Not only adultery physically, but also in its mental forms as well. If one doesn't put these things to death, then it's going to lead men and women to be trapped in in what can be a horrible cycle of pornography. If you don't put these things to death, what's going to happen? Even in the workplace, it's going to lower your standards as to a Christian work ethic. You won't do it unto the Lord. When these things are not put to death, what happens? It it causes people, even in the workplace, to embezzle, to cut corners, to lie, to cheat, to steal. And there goes their testimony. Now, it's obvious from the world. That's to be expected from the world. But not from us. I want you to note something, though. Look at verse 2. Go back to Colossians verse 2. Notice a connection that's there. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And Paul is addressing false teaching at the church at Colossae. He says, you're looking in the wrong direction. You're looking to um, human effort. You're, You're looking to that if you can train your body and if you can degrade your body, that somehow that is going to give you some sense of spiritual vigor, but it doesn't. Don't look at these things that are on the earth. But it's also interesting as well, in verse 2 he says the things that are on earth, but notice in verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, therefore consider the members of your earthly body. Yes, we are still in this life, and, and we will not be perfect in this life and we still have struggles in this life because we're in this earthly body but this earthly body should not cause us to fix our priorities here it's housing us but it shouldn't be us look above not to the things that are here and are passing away you know um huey mentioned that um when i was um, in college football scholarship and uh, amazing how some of my colleagues at that time were, they were just totally fixed on the next level. At least they thought they were going to get to the next level. And everything was, was based on that. It was extra time in the gym. It was um, maybe even at times skipping class so they could put effort here. And it was so sad to see some of them, their dreams just shatter. I mean, they were just an injury away and it was all over. And I saw guys like that, that and this goes back, well, I'm dating myself a little bit, but um, some years ago, I'll just say that. <laughs> no, it was. It was 30 years ago. Wow. Some of you weren't even thought about 30 years ago. It was all here in this life, and then all of a sudden, it's taken away, and they have nothing whatsoever. It's all gone. And not just in the athletic realm, but other people as well. Everything is in this life. All the resources are in this life. And they're building a fortune. And then it's all gone, just like that. And they have nothing. It's like when the scripture tells us you know, not to invest so much of our time and our efforts here because it takes up wings and it flies away. And how many times have we seen that happen to people? Here's a third consideration is this. A practical manifestation of virtue is needed to authenticate a victorious walk of faith. So he tells us in verse 5, put these things to death. He, he makes a strong statement in verse 6. You should understand that God's wrath is going to come upon the sons of disobedience who live these things out. So if God's wrath is going to come upon them who live this out, surely you shouldn't live that way. So he says to them in verse 8, therefore put aside... Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And don't lie to one another. Now, notice what he's saying here. Paul is not directing this to the world. He's obviously directing it to the church at Colossae. And the implication is clear. There were some people in the church who were angry and wrathful. And they were showing malice and slander. And they were even lacking in integrity towards one another in verse 9. But he says instead, put on the new self. And then he, gives, he expresses the new self even more. In verses 12 to 17. See, what he's saying here is that it has to be authenticated. If there has been an internal transformation of your life, where is it? Let's see it. All these virtues that he's going to tell us about in these verses here, it should express itself in some way. Notice in verse 12. And what I want to do now is give you seven sort of connections between these virtues that we'll see in verses 12 to 17 and how you can actually live out what you'll see in verse 18 and following. And number one would be this. Family and work require you to have or to behave as a chosen person of God. You're a chosen person of God. Notice verse 12. So he says, now that you put these things away, verses 5 to 11, You need to behave like what? A chosen person of God. You are chosen of God, holy and beloved. So now what he's saying here, the standard has changed. You are no longer obviously a child of wrath. Now you're a child of God's pleasure. Let your behavior reflect accordingly is what he's saying. Chosen of God. Boy, I am so thankful for just this doctrine, this reality. There I was on my own sin, in in a path myself where I was as well transfixed, thinking about the things on the earth and how I could make a life for myself and what that life was going to be like and, and having it all mapped out. And then seeing God just take it all away from you in a moment. But at the same time, when God took it away, he put something in, which was him saving me there at the University of Cincinnati and setting me on a different path for life. And now that I am, in fact, a chosen person of God, I have to behave accordingly. Chosen person of God, if you were to follow this thought, you go back to the patriarchs being chosen by God, Israel being chosen by God, and then Jesus Christ, chosen of God. But not only that, he says you're holy, to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct. You're to be distinct from the world. But not simply that, he's saying that I have an affection for you. You're beloved by God. It's a good thing just to, to think on the reality that the sovereign of the universe cares for you dearly and affectionately is what he's communicating here Now, let that motivate you as well and you have to put on these virtues. Why do you have to do that? Because you will emulate Christ powerfully. See, Christ was a chosen one of God, and now we're chosen people of God, and we're called to emulate him. So now the privilege we have to emulate God, whereas before it was just the opposite. We ran from God. We were contrary to God, but now we can be emulators of God. This is a radical transformation that takes place in the Christian life. So now The privilege is ours to emulate Christ powerfully. Number two would be this. Family and work require you to put on the virtues of faith. So he says, yes, that's the context that you should think about these things as being chosen. But now here are the virtues that replace what you saw earlier. So before, instead of immorality and impurity and greed and anger and wrath and lying, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, he says. So you have to put on these virtues of faith. Why do you do that? Because it manifests the grace of God. Not only the grace of God towards you, but also the grace of God amongst other people. To show compassion. That is to look on other people with seeing their need and having a sense of pity and then acting on that need. To show kindness. That is practical ways that you can help your brother and sister. To walk in humility. To not think of oneself first, but to think of others first. To show gentleness when the natural response might be harshness or indifference either. To be patient. I was thinking about, um, you know, the gentleman that I referred to that I met in British Columbia, and um, patience. Uh, Interesting word, this, this word that means that to be long of suffering and is the backdrop to the word, to be long in suffering. Every relationship takes patience. Do you agree with that? Um, All you married folks that are here today, have you grown in patience in marriage? Did you you perhaps realize that you weren't as patient as you thought you were prior to marriage? When it comes to parenting, the the patience to watch a child grow and, and see them developed as a parent. In the workplace, patience that you need to work with other people, even perhaps those that You supervise or working or being patient with that person. It can be agitating at times that's even supervising you. Absolutely necessary to be long in suffering. Whereas before you were short fused, now there's a length of suffering that you can endure because Christ is that way. I mean, think about it for a moment. Where would we all be if Christ were not patient with us? That's something that's um, true in parenting. Sometimes one can, you know, have these expectations of your kids, but then when you take it through the grid of God's patience with you, it can temper some of your expectations. Because you say to yourself, I have this expectation, and here's my response to my child. If God responded that way to me, where would I be? Patience. These virtues are necessary. Number three is this. Family and work require you to offer forgiveness consistently. Forgiveness consistently. Forgiveness must be shown. Why is this necessary? Because it, it heals injury. Notice what you see in verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And this word bearing with actually could be translated that you're tolerating one another. Now, generally when we think about the word tolerate, we can think about it sort of a negative connotation. You know, sort of I'm tolerating it. I don't really like it, so I'll tolerate it. You know, one goes to a restaurant and you, and you have some food that's really not that great. You may tolerate it. Or someone that gets on your nerves, you, you tolerate that person. But here, he's taking it out of that negative connotation. He's saying you tolerate, but in the sense that they have maybe quirks about them, idiosyncrasies about them that may rub you the wrong, wrong way. They have tendencies, but you bear with them. You're with them in the long run, is what he's saying. Then most definitely you must be forgiving as well. Continually forgiving. Consistently forgiving. No injury, I'm sorry, no relationship can make it without forgiveness. Not one. It's not going to happen in your family. It's not going to happen in the world. If you're not willing to forgive and notice the motivation again is it takes us back to christ notice in verse 13 whoever has a complaint against anyone it's happening in the body then notice what he says in verse 13 just as the lord has forgiven you so we pause for a moment and ask ourselves a question to what degree is that i mean what's the magnitude of god forgiving me When I think about my personal sins, sins of action, sins of thought, and God forgiving me all of those sins. So I ask myself a question then, who am I to withhold forgiveness from anyone when Christ has forgiven me so much? That's something that every Christian should keep in the forefront of their minds and say to themselves, who am I to not extend forgiveness when Christ has forgiven me? So he says, so also should you. Number four is this. Family and work require you to strive to love consistently. So you forgive consistently, but you love consistently. Notice verse 14. What does he say? Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Why? Because obviously it builds unity in the body. And what's interesting, what Paul is saying here. When he says beyond all these things, I believe what Paul is saying, beginning in verse 12, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving. And he says beyond all of that, put on love. Why? Because he's saying here is a supreme virtue. And we know that from other places in scripture as well, that love is beyond all else. We know that God is love. We are called to love one another. And why would he say is the perfect bond of unity? Think about it this way. What he's saying, here are all these virtues, compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and bearing and forgiving. You put these together and love is sort of like the glue that will hold them together. You will not ultimately continue in compassion if you're not growing in love. You won't be consistent in your kindness if you're not growing in love. And what he's saying in one sense, if you take away love It's like that thread that you can take away, then everything falls apart. Because first, you're not motivated properly to show these virtues if it's not first motivated in love. So it's the perfect bond of unity. What unifies, ultimately, cornerstone, love brings you together. It it bonds you, and it bonds your heart together. So it brings unity. Number five is this. Family and work require you to seek the peace of Christ in all relationships. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called into one body, and be thankful. What is he saying here in verse 15? Uh, I don't believe Paul is talking about let Christ rule in your hearts individually. What he is talking about, let Christ rule in your hearts corporately. So there should be an atmosphere of peace that is ruling in all of your lives. So here at Cornerstone, is there peace in your midst? Why? And my experience, not just from pastoring, you know, for many years, but also just specifically even with Grace Advance, some of the situations that we have to work with in churches are churches that have gone through difficulty, heartache, pain, and there's been a church split or the potential for a church split. And in every situation, this is absolutely true Peace was not ruling. And what he's saying is this. Peace must rule because of this. It is the proper goal. What do I mean by that? Peace is the proper goal. Think about it from this standpoint. Have you ever, and I shouldn't say have you ever, you've had um, differences with someone in the body of Christ even, and you come to a meeting to try to reconcile. Now, you can come to that meeting with this goal. I'm going to prove them what? wrong. I have more than enough ammunition on my side. Logic is on my side. The facts are on my side. And then you come to that meeting with that goal in mind. That's the wrong goal. In a husband-and-wife relationship, now you need to talk through an issue. And if you come to that conversation with a goal in mind other than peace, then you come with the wrong goal. Paul is saying the peace of Christ should rule in your hearts. And notice even further this idea because you're called into one body. So make that your goal. You come to any situation, any relationship. What is my goal? Is it to win? And sometimes it's that I want to win. Or is it peace? Now, if your goal is peace, you come with a different perspective, a different heart. It'll be one of humility and gentleness and patience. Peace. Number six is this, family and work require you to seek the word of Christ in all relationships. Then he says in verse 16 that the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Again, he's saying in your midst, Christ's word should be richly dwelling in you. And it's my position that he's saying here, one way that this happens is actually through powerful praise in the midst of God's people. So you do it through singing in Honoring Christ through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's why it's important, even when we sing to the Lord, that our songs have some substance to them. Because what Paul, I believe, is saying here, when you sing to the Lord in the midst of corporate worship, it edifies because that's a way for you to learn and to promote the Word of God. It's even a way for you to teach and admonish. So that... That really is something where we have to consider even what we sing. And what we sang earlier today, I would say all of that was an opportunity to admonish and to teach and to edify. Because there have been places that I've gone, and and perhaps you know as well, there's songs that are sort of in contemporary society today. You say to yourself, what are they saying? I mean, to whom are they referring? It could be something that could be on a pop station or it could be on a Christian broadcast It's not truly discernible what the message is. That's why music is so important that even it's a way for us to even learn more about the word of God. Then number seven is this. Family and work require you to seek the will of God in all things. Verse 17. It sort of comes to a head here in one sense. Why is this necessary? Because it is the ultimate goal of life. So he pulls it all together in one sense. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So it encompasses everything. (laughs) In your family, in your work, your job, your recreation, whatever you do. Um, My mother's favorite verse, at least I... She was really not, not taught to me because she died when I was really young. But um, as you know, oral tradition has passed on in families, that everyone would tell me, you know, your mom's favorite verse was um, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Do all to the glory of God. So all of life is to the glory of God. So you ask yourself a question. Am I looking above or below? Will this help me do all to his glory? Will it help me do everything in word or in deed, every action of life? But notice something in verse 17 It's so important. This is what shapes these decisions. He says, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A simple principle, but yet it's so profound because it should touch every aspect of our life. you ask yourself a question, if I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, can it be done in his name? Can I make that decision in his name? Is that the proper use of my resources in his name? Is that how I should prioritize in his name? Is that the response I should have? Can I have that response in his name? Name is very important, isn't it? You know, as a kid growing up, uh, my father was family known in the community and that had benefits to it. Um, because people would know, hey, yeah, yeah, Hargrove, let me help you out here. But also I remember sometimes as a young kid, um, there was a downside to it because guess what? Everyone knew you. So if everyone knew you, if you're in trouble, guess what happens? You're a Hargrove, aren't you? I remember that. It's as if it was yesterday. You're a Hargrove, aren't you? And at times you're in trouble and it's like, your dad wouldn't like that. I'm going to let your dad know about that times it was on a first name basis. You know, I'm going to let Thaddeus know about that. I know him. I've known your dad all my life and he's a good man and he did this and he did that. He wouldn't like that. And you sort of just shrink from it because you're thinking, that's right, I'm a Hargrove. And whether that's my propensity or not, guess what? I can't do it in that name because it's inconsistent with the name. And that's a human name. From as much as I loved my dad and as much as people thought he was a great person, he was flawed as well. He was a sinner as well. But here's the name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ask, what do you do in his name that would be inconsistent with it? See, when we can deal with this text the wife is going to be able to follow a husband even if he's not leading properly. It prepares you for it. If you deal with this text properly and think about it and meditate on it, husbands will be able to love a woman who's not submitting and even at times perhaps even aggravating. Children will be able to obey parents even if they don't quite understand the reasons behind it or even fully agree because they know they do it unto the Lord. If we understand something like this, it will prepare you for life. Then fathers will deal with their children with gentleness instead of harshness instead, which can exasperate a child. If we deal with a passage like this properly, then employees uh, will be able to work in an environment where it's difficult and it's hard because they see themselves as working unto the Lord. And even if there is injustice there, they can deal with that because they know that injustice was also done to Christ as well. If you deal with this passage properly, I think that it will give you a platform to be a witness for Christ in the marketplace of life because you realize this is what I'm supposed to do. This is my calling. This is my purpose in life. So whatever I'm supposed to do in word or in deed, I'm going to do it unto Christ, to God the Father. I'm going to look to Christ where he is, seated above, not on the things on the earth because the things on the earth are passing away. I'm going to fix my heart on the one who has already fixed his heart and is calling on me, and I'm going to serve him. I look to eternity. So at least in some measure, perhaps I might even say in great measure, we can say that our lives are aligning with our future, which is in front of us. And we might get closer to Jesus Christ, who says, I'll always do the things that are pleasing to him. So, Father, thank you for your grace and mercy uh, you show us in your word and pray that um, you give us the heart and the will to live this out. In Christ's name, amen.